Corinthians. Again, we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll warn you now, this is a very difficult passage. Let's just say it's mysterious. A lot of people are not quite sure what it means. We're going to give it a try to take it in context and see what eternity in the heart might mean on the backdrop of a time for everything. There's time, and but maybe there's eternity. Even in our hearts, as we acknowledge that fact, even in the world, why things are this way. So I'm going to read once again from Ecclesiastes. I'll repeat the first verses, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and that's the poem. You may remember I give you an alternative at the end. But then it goes on to discuss further what God might be doing in the world. Here's God's word again. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, that which already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Once again, may God bless our understanding of this passage. You'll find an outline on your insert sheet with the prayer requests on the other side, eternity in the heart, why things are this way, the creation of all, eternity, satisfaction, three stages of eternity, and then the fear of God. Shall we pray? Lord, you have given us an understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. We know through your creation that your power is there, your wisdom, your infinite mercies even are displayed on every hand, and yet we still don't worship you as we ought, especially in the world. Help us to be eager to answer these questions by referring to you, our God, who does things that cannot be repeated, that you do things that will last forever. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to give an illustration from a novel that has been made into a movie a couple of times. And it's one of the earliest science fiction stories ever made. And it was by H.G. Wells, and it's called The War of the Worlds. It's classic science fiction. And if you haven't seen it, what happens is that a bunch of aliens from Mars, I think it was, came and invaded the Earth, and it was terrifying. They're 
their technology was far beyond ours. They had these big, tall, three-legged walkers. And they strode around the cities, and they destroyed buildings and killed people with their death rays on every side. And no matter what we could do, in some of the movies it imagines they would be struck with jet planes and various other high-technology weapons, but it didn't work. They were unstoppable. It looked for sure as though humanity was about to be completely wiped out. But in a sudden turn of events, in a great surprise, suddenly all their machines stopped. And as some movie makers imagine it, these little weakling-looking creatures fell out of their portholes in the bottom of their ships, and they were choking, and they were dying, and it turned out they died of the flu. And you think, oh, come on. That can't have done it. Of course, you you can see what H.G. Wells was thinking. They had never been exposed to earth germs, is the theory. And those little tiny microscopic things fought against the aliens when we had nothing that we could do about it. This idea of sudden deliverance in the midst of a hopeless situation is very common in movies and literature of all sorts. Does that kind of thing ever really happen? We ask the question, how shall we escape the mess that we're in? We might join the writer to Ecclesiastes and look all around us and say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There is no hope for any of us. Who says we will ever escape the troubles that we are in? Who says we have to? Now, what says we sort of have to is the image of God in man. We believe we were made for something greater than this. Our hearts speak, as we shall see to us, in a way that makes us kind of long for God's deliverance. All of Ecclesiastes, in a way, is filled with vanity and hopelessness, but replaced by a growing hope that life actually does make sense, that God knows what he is doing. It is a most difficult passage to look at, In verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What What is he saying here exactly? The common meaning of eternity, I think, is the one we should use. There are other guesses. People say maybe the world is in our hearts. Maybe ignorance is in our hearts. Maybe we know nothing. But the idea is we sense something. We believe something might be greater than we are. Eternity in the heart. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Now, there have been references to God before in Ecclesiastes. In verse 1, on the unhappy business that God has put us into, some things are from the hand of God in chapter 2. God gives us to eat and drink and rejoice and please God and so forth. But now in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, there are seven or eight references to God. The business that God has given, God has done, God's gift to man, what God does, what God does, and God's seeking. Do you see there's a new theme here? God is doing something. 
whatever it is. This is similar to the idea of eternity in the heart. There must be something more than this. Remember, the beginning poem is on the background where it says there is time for everything, but it doesn't show who wins. Who wins? Does God win? Does the devil win? Does birth win? Does death win? Does joy win? Does sorrow win? And therefore, there's kind of an uncertainty in which skepticism reigns. Everything's kind of good and bad and lost and found, and who knows what the ending will be. Now, we hope for certain things. I've talked about the Space Center here in Huntsville. Major, give you another illustration to that. We went to the moon, and then we sent probes elsewhere in the solar system. And will all of these explorations make our humanity any better? What happened when we went to the moon? Well, it was great. We brought back some rocks. Did we transcend time and space and have a new meaning to life, despite all of these rockets that we see everywhere, and we think there's a new and golden frontier ahead of us? Things will be better after all, and I don't think so. You look around, things seem to be worse than ever, and we might join with the skepticism of this poem. But 10 and 11 have a little bit different shift. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So we first start out with the fact that God does give us things to do. Now that might be really obvious and not much comfort, but yet we still live. We have not been wiped off the face of the earth by the Martians. We still are here and we still do things. And God has made everything in its time. And this is a helpful reminder We have uh, things that God has given us to be busy with, it says in verse 10. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it's not the greatest thing in the world. It's a good thing as far as it goes. We can understand the basic things about creation and what God has done, even in the young child's catechism. I'll see if you know that one. Who made you? God, right? What else did God make? God made all things, right? That's so basic. By the way, you know a lot more than some great unbelieving philosophers do. You are a genius, sort of speak. You know, God gave you things that you understand better than many people. God made me and everything. All things are made by God. But that's not quite enough, is it, to say? Because if he really did make us, then what are we doing here? And why are things not going so well? This problem is here in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Now, the word time there also refers back to verses 1 to 8. A time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. So the whole theme of the chapter so far has been time, the here and the now. But what about the opposite of time, which you might argue is eternity? Something that has lasted forever and that will last forever, what God is doing in the world. Now, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's kind of tantalizing. You know the word tantalizing? That comes from Tantalus, who was given eternal punishment in Tartarus or hell. And I forget what he was being punished for, but he was tortured by seeing things to eat and drink that were always just out of his reach. Oh, he was so thirsty. And he'd see water, and he'd reach to it, and it would move back. And he would see food, and he would reach for it, and it would move back. And he could never, ever 
actually get it, but he wanted it. He continued to want what was just out of reach for his terrible sins, and this is the idea of tantalizing somebody. Somehow or other, helping us to know that we can't get what we want. (coughs) Now, we do this too sometimes in a kind of a stupid way. I think it's a pretty senseless thing to watch the Food Network. You're watching TV. You're seeing these chefs make all kinds of wonderful dishes, but you can't taste it. (laughs) You think it might be good. Oh, that would be great. But you don't get to taste it. What's the point? You need to be in the kitchen, not watching TV. You think you might like it, but you don't have it now. Now, you notice that's something kind of positive in the sense that you know or think there's something good out there somewhere. God made everything beautiful in its time. And yet, what about forever? Not just now, but what about forever? The answer is that God has put eternity into man's hearts. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless till we find our rest in God. Where is the end? Where is the settlement? Where is the end of war, the end of hate, the end of disease, the end of struggle, the end of pain? Can't we have a relief? Can't we reach that for which we so desperately long? We just don't want to fail. We don't want to be wiped out. We don't want to die. We want there to be some kind of eternity. I tried to give an illustration in my own mind about how many people have failed in their search for what they wanted to do. I looked for examples of futility, and I did find some, but I found some that actually succeeded after all of that. Well, Edison, how many times did he fail to make the proper light bulb filament? I can't remember what it was until he finally came up with a carbon filament in a vacuum, of all things. One of the simplest things you could think of. But he failed over and over again. Newton tried to figure out his theories for many years. Einstein, as smart as he was, often failed. Steve Jobs would fail. Disney often failed. Gene Roddenberry, of Star Trek fame, often failed in his imaginary pursuits. But I also found examples of abject failure, such as the Edsel. Ford Edsel was made with great hoopla, but nobody bought it. It looked stupid. And then, of course, some of you may or not remember, I think it was probably 20 years ago at least, in which Coke had a great idea. Let's change the flavor of Coke. They called it New Coke. Great idea, right? Oh, man, there was such uproar. Everybody said, bring back the old Coke. And I forget how long it was, a few months, before they quietly took the new Coke off the shelf. It was a failure. Go back to what they really liked. I found a couple of things I don't think would be very successful from the very beginning. Harley Davidson at one point made perfume. Motorcycle exhaust, I don't know. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Why would you have a motorcycle manufacturer make perfume? Who would wear it? Oh, come on. Now, of course, the big failures we think of in history, Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany, they all tried something that failed and were, of course, glad they did in some cases. But again, there are people who are looking for higher and greater, what we sometimes call escape hatches, 
in movies and books and rides and looking for some fun, having vacations, always hoping for more. There's a famous phrase that is in Greek, and it is pronounced as best as I can, deus ex machina. It looks like God from the machine. Now, what in the world is that? Well, it's actually a fact that in those days, <coughs> they had dramas, a little bit like our TV shows or our movies, and they would have guys on the stage. Let's say the good guys and the bad guys are in, are in a battle. And you're rooting for the good guys, but they're not doing very well. Suddenly, when all seems lost, does this sound familiar? When all seems lost, they would lower down a god from a machine. Can you imagine this? They had off stage, you know, a crane. And they had a boom out from the crane. And then at just the right moment, they would crank the god down on the crane, on a rope. And it would be like, and here comes this god, ta-da! And he wipes out the bad guys. And that's called deus ex machina, or a god from the machine. A sudden, improbable, some would say impossible, deliverance, Clearly, it was fake. Clearly, battles get lost all the time by the good guys, but we hope for salvation anyway. A spaceship might fly in and save the hero in a medieval movie. That's actually one movie that you may or may not know about. The Lord of the Rings, we've often rejoiced in how the good guys finally somehow win. Remember, our heroes are on the edge of a cliff, and they're climbing trees, and the orcs are after them, and they're throwing fireballs at them, and there's no hope because they're bound to fall off the cliff. And suddenly, the eagles swoop in and grab them and take them away, and you go, where do they come from? That's God from the machine, the unexpected deliverance. No matter how improbable, we have to have somebody to save us. We have to have a desire fulfilled, the desire we have for something more than this. I think, therefore, I am, we might say, but then we say, well, at least I think I must be. There's got to be more than this. Now, it starts out by a a sort of a partial answer in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for those people who long for eternity to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Well, that's pretty good. We must still know that we are here to live and do things. Remember, it is good for, to be, for the children of man to be busy with various things. Fine, we must be content. But it's still only the here and now. Seize the day. Well, it doesn't talk about tomorrow. Grab the day while it comes. And then who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Just enjoy yourself. At least it gives us something to do. But it doesn't mean that we're going to be saved. There is really no God on a crane let down from the sky. It doesn't happen that way, but at least we have some things to do and to do things as long as we live. Notice, that's all, as long as they live. However, we do know that when we eat and drink and take pleasure, even in our work, this is God's gift to man, and that's not an uncommon theme in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5 says, I've seen what is to be good and fitting to eat and drink, find enjoyment in life under the sun in the few days of life that God has given him. Chapter 8, I commend joy, for, there's, for man has nothing better under the sun to eat and drink and be joyful 
and even in the toil through the days of his life that God has given him. So live for the here and now. Now, we know many people that do that. They may believe in God, but they don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in heaven or hell. They don't believe there's anything after this. Verse 22 even says this, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So now, at the end of our lives, the writer expects nothing is going to happen at first. Get used to disappointment. Get used to being let down. Get used to failure. And get used to death. And you say to me, but I don't want to get used to disappointment. I don't want to get used to death. And I say, you know why? You have eternity in your heart. There's something that says, this is not right. I need somebody to get me out of this mess. Now, there are three stages to these, this thinking, I think. First of all, people in general will say, as the author did at times, there is nothing more than this. I mean, how many people have you talked to who say, we're just animals, we just die? And the humanists and the modernists and the postmodernists look at the Christian or the hopeful unbeliever even and say, give it up. You guys are crazy. Live the way you want and don't imagine that there is a God. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. The universe is a vast emptiness. And the universe will not end with a bang, but with a whimper. It'll all just kind of peter out. And evolutionists teach us that we have no future except what we make of it. How are we doing in that job? And there's no past but random cells becoming more and more complicated somehow so that life emerges randomly out of the murk and the mire. And that's all there is, just trying to do our best till we fall back into the swamp. The author agrees at first, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, chapter 1. But by this time in chapter 3, he is saying there must be something more than this. And we all know it. Even in the hope of mankind in his heart beats the idea that we must have someone to save us. Now I'll give you one last movie illustration. This one I think you may remember is very famous. It was made some time ago before 2001, but the name of the movie is 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, now that has come and gone. But the idea was that in 2001, eventually, we would have reached space, and we would be able to explore space, which we have a little bit. But it starts out with apes, way back in our evolutionary past. And they're beating drums and dancing around a mysterious obelisk, which is like the Washington Monument, only it's black, and it's kind of rectangular. And here's this strange-looking black obelisk sitting there, and it seems to be doing nothing. But this black obelisk is always there throughout history somewhere until the very end when mankind is supposedly delivered from our vanity. And the reason why we are delivered from our vanity is there will be born a child called a star child. Now, this is a strange ending. This is one of those, you know, God from the machine endings. Out in space is a big baby. 
You're going, what? <laughs> Some child somewhere will be called a star child, and he will lead us into a glorious future. Well, where did that come from? It's the desire we have for some new birth, some new deliverance. Someday we shall overcome. But the author says we don't overcome in some human child, but in God and his recreation, his strength, his deliverance. We go from there's nothing more than this to there must be something more than this. That's eternity in the heart. Until finally, there will be something more than this. Look at the verse again, verse 11. So that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God is doing something. This is the point. God is doing something. We don't know what he's doing, maybe, but he's doing something from the beginning to the end, a great plan. There's some kind of plan that God has, and we find that somehow or other, we cannot do it ourselves. It says we can't even find out what God is doing. Implication, God is doing it anyway. God is still still doing something that we shall come to understand, and it's just out of reach on our own. We search for things, but we never find them. We imagine deliverances, but they never come. It is frustrating. It is always just out of reach. It is tantalizing, but is it forever out of reach is the question. Now we drop down to verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now this is the point of verse 11. So that we cannot find out what God is doing, but someday people will fear before him. Why all this hopelessness? Why all this vanity? Why all these dashed hopes and failed projects? We might conclude that if it were left to us, Nothing is going to go right. It will be death, killing, weeping, losing, tearing, silence, hate, and war. And that's the end, verses 1 to 8. Nothing good wins. But in this passage, there are hints that God will someday teach us to fear him, which is another way of saying in an Old Testament way, to trust him. That is a reverential awe by which we finally admit that God is God and we cannot save ourselves. That we're going to have to have God descend out of heaven, not on a rope or by a machine, but in reality. All the failed ventures of mankind, all the dashed hopes, God has designed life so that we will not find out the answers on our own so that we can finally hope in him, that we can finally fear him, and God's grace will be paramount because God is the one who will seek everything that has been driven away. God will get the praise at the end. We talked in our inquirer's class about what does it mean to glorify God, to give him all the praise and not to take any for ourselves. There is nothing new under the sun. God runs things the same way for a long time, but... When the fullness of time comes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that God really does something new, that God really does seek for the lost, and he finds the wayward, and he forgives the sinful. And this is why we still hope for God, 
And when God comes and our hope turns into faith in him, finally we realize we've been living in vanity all of our lives. I told you about Acts 17, and we read this, where Paul speaks to the people who had all kinds of idols, and they weren't sure about them. At that point in history, the Athenians were not sure they were right. Some of these people become what they call atheists. An atheist says, we don't believe in the Greek gods. That sounds kind of stupid anyway. They were sinful, they were fighting, they did really crazy things. So why would we want to follow these Greek gods? And they were limited. How about if there's another god somewhere that we don't know about that is greater than all of our idols who will do something greater and better and do it for real? I see you have an altar to the unknown god. What is that unknown god? It's the desire they have for something more than what they already know about. Some desire that maybe there is a god somewhere who will come and deliver us a hope that they have not yet found. And then he says, that which you worship, which you do not know, I tell you now is real. God declares unto you that he has not let down his son on a crane and a rope. He has actually come down from heaven. He is God himself, truly God, but he's amongst us. And he fights against our enemies. And he defeats sin and death and hell. It seems unexpected, although the prophets predicted it. You didn't know about it. What you don't know about, I now declare unto you. And we can say to our friends, I have good news for you. What you don't know about, God has already done. And he's declared it because he's willing to overlook times of ignorance. Times of not knowing times of eternity in your heart and you wonder what in the world is going on here right now. There is a time in which God brought revelation and redemption and salvation sent down not only from the living and true God but in the living and true God from heaven to earth where we can see him and know him and believe in him, and trust in him, and know that he has delivered us from our sins, and our rebellion, and come to open blind eyes, and to give us new hearts, and to give us a new purpose in life, and to forgive us of all of our sins, and to make him like himself. Brothers and sisters, we should be amazed that that has happened. Sometimes as Christians we go, oh well, yeah, God saved us, so what? So what? What if God didn't save us? What if God had left us in our sin? What if our hope in eternity is dashed and there is nothing more than this? The good news is there is more than this. God has done it so that you finally might turn away from your idols and find him because he found you first. Shall we pray? Lord God, we are astounded that we take your grace for granted. We think it's an ordinary thing that God should become man, that God should suffer and die in the person of his son, as we sang earlier in one of our hymns, that the immortal dies. Who can explore your strange design? This is a plan beyond our understanding, and you do it so that we know that we could not have done it, and you do it so that we would give you the praise and thank you 
for you being the only one who could have done it and the only one who did, that we might fear you and love you forever and ever in all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.